Hello. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this is Clockworks, a Legion podcast where we watch Legion like a hawk works. Okay. <laughs> Get it? Because like... It's it, not really a pun. It's just kind of a rhyme, which I'm into. Yeah, I'm, into a, I'm into a rhyme. Clock sounds like hawk. Clock sounds like hawk. Sounds like TikTok. So we... <laughs> That was my funny. You laughed. I, I'm i very encouraging, and I laugh at you when you're funny, <laughs> unlike you who are always discouraging me. Because if I encourage you, you can go on for a very long time. We are talking this week about Legion Chapter 16. We are giving it the title, The Cave. This episode was directed by Jeremy Webb and written by Noah Hawley and Jordan Crair. Noah Hawley, of course, is the creator of the show. Jordan Crare has been script coordinator for both seasons of Legion. He was script coordinator on uh, season three of Fargo as well. I looked up a little bit. I wasn't familiar with what script coordinator is. Do you know what that is? Well, I mean, they coordinate script. Yeah. (laughs) So to answer your question, I have no idea. To the best of my understanding, the script coordinator is like the... uh, copy editor of the script so they read through the script they make sure that the formatting and you know they check for mistakes in the script and kind of correct them and then hand them on to uh like to the script supervisor who is the one who oversees the script in for shooting Hmm. script coordinator is often a uh transition position on the way to being a staff writer. And Jordan Crair, this is his first and only writing credit on IMDb. I appreciate, I feel like Noah Hawley, just from an outside perspective, is a giving people a chance kind of person. It he's, seems he like kind it. Of is the kind of person who's bringing them alongside and training people to be better. And I appreciate hearing stories about that. Yeah, and having someone who was script coordinator for two seasons and is now, like, gets a writing credit, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, but from the outside, it seems like this is someone who's getting a break. Yeah, that's really cool. Who's the director? Jeremy Webb has directed many episodes of TV, including one episode of Runaways, two episodes of Doctor Who, two episodes of Downton Abbey, uh, where he worked worked with Dan Dan Stevens. Stevens. Uh, This is his first time directing Legion. Cool. Well, good job to all three of those people. Indeed. So let's get into the episode. We open on a desert with the words, To create fear, hold up a mirror. And it turns out that's a quote from the Mego monks. Yeah, I was familiar with that uh, Mego monk adage. Yeah, absolutely. Because of how they're real. Hey, don't interrupt my uh, recap. I'm sorry, carry on. (laughs) On the steps of Division 3, David and Sid talk about how to find Farouk's body. Sid wants to listen to her future self, but David does not. Photonomy, meanwhile, is in the binary place. He finds Fukuyama, and Photonomy sees his past and being recruited by Division 3. A 17-year-old Fukuyama is operated on, and then a nurse reads to him from the Phantom Tollbooth. Autonomy chases a wire down the hallway and finds the monk. He reads the monk's past and sees the desert. 
Then he touches the wall to take over one of the vermilion. Potonomy inside a vermilion talks to David and tells him where to find Farouk's body, a desert called Le Desole. Oliver arrives at a retirement home to talk to, his, to Farouk's former driver. She asks about the professor, but Farouk is totally focused on this body. She asks for the endless dream, and they are in a car in the astral plane. She shows him where to go, and he leaves her either dead or asleep on the astral plane. All right. What is, like, I interrupted your synopsis to crack wise about it, but what is this to create fear? Hold up a mirror. Like, I can understand, uh, I ask and then answer my own question. Yeah. I can understand what it means in the abstract, like, I mean, first of all, it rhymes, but all sort of, uh, but also like what it means in the abstract is what people are most afraid of is the thing that they recognize as being, uh, worthy of fear in themselves. Mm -hmm. This is by the way, something kind of a variation on a thing I talk about all the time when I teach, uh, monster books that monster stories are about, uh, representing the outer boundaries of what civilization is willing to accept so in a sense monsters are always a mirror of humanity of the what in humanity we don't want to accept as you know helpful or or human mm -hmm. but in the context of this episode to create fear hold up a mirror what does that have to do with this episode i feel like it's this quote from the Migo order that seems profound but isn't necessarily okay uh I'm not sure what it has to do with the episode as a whole. Is there a lot of fear in this episode? Not really. I mean, we've been talking about that in the John Hamm sections mm -hmm. all along, and it feels like it has more to do with the previous episode hmm. than this one. But it also might mean, might have something to do with how to not be lost in the desert. Is this the secret? Right. To getting out of the desert is either to not hold up a mirror or to hold up a mirror. Maybe. That's a theory. We've noticed before that there are characters who seem to be reflections of each other. And we get, I think, uh, like we've had Fukuyama be a mirror of the Shadow King and a mirror of David. And we've had David be a mirror of the Shadow King. And here we really have... I think Fukuyama as a reflection of David. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about that as we go forward. I'm not sure where that ends, but that's where I started thinking that like, who's a mirror? Well, there are characters who are kind of antagonists of each other, but are mirrors of each other. Yeah, I can see that. And what makes them antagonistic is the fact that they're mirrors of each other. Mm -hmm. To create fear, hold up a mirror. To create an antagonist, hold up someone who is like the, pro the protagonist? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. And then we have... So we have... Uh, Potonomy in the... The binary room, you call it. Uh, in the mainframe. I kind of like the binary room as the name of it. Um, Which, that has been translated, by the way. In our last episode, we were like, we're not translating that binary... But someone has, and it says, wait and see. 
I wonder or it if it did in the last episode. I don't know if it says that in this episode. I was going to say, I wonder if it says the same thing now. Last episode was wait and see, and we've waited and seen, and this is what we're seeing. Yes. Uh, we see Fukuyama's kind of origin story. Mm-hmm. Well, Fukuyama is in the mainframe completely faceless. Yeah. Like, autonomy comes across him, and he is himself without a face. And is that to do with, like, the basket erases his face, erases his voice? I don't know. And I wonder, like, Patonomy saw Fukuyama without a basket, but he was under the influence of a bug in his brain. So is it one of these things that, like, Fukuyama, I'm sorry, Patonomy only knows what he knows. Hmm. So he, except that he's in the mainframe and he does gain knowledge in this section. He does learn things he didn't otherwise know. Yes. So that doesn't really hold water, I think. No, I don't think it does. But is it imply that something about Fukuyama now is like, you know, the the silence of Doctor Who, you know? How so? That for, we forget what he looks like? Yeah. I was more thinking that Fukuyama doesn't have, uh, is so multiplied now that he doesn't have his own face. I mean, he literally has a face in the real world, but in his own head, he does not have one. His body has a face, but his body isn't him. Yeah, exactly. And when we look back... Uh, to young Fukuyama, by the way, in the first episode of this season, Fukuyama kind of tells this story and he says, when we were a boy, mm-hmm. I was picturing him a lot younger than we see him. Yeah. But 17-year-old Fukuyama. Yeah, they, ask, they ask how old he was and he said 17. He gets approached by Brubaker. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the guy we recognize from the last season. He was yeah. the leader of Division Three in the last season. He was. He was uh, reading Freud as he, he approached. Did what you, do we make of that? Well, did you catch what specifically he's reading of Freud? I don't remember. He's reading the Unheimlich. Unheimlich is German. It literally means unhomely, but is usually translated as uncanny. Hmm. Brubaker sees that he's reading the Unheimlich and quotes... Everything is unheimlich that ought to have remained secret and hidden, but has come to light. Now, Brubaker is quoting Freud from the unheimlich, but Freud was quoting early 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Schelling Hmm. in his book, so it's not originally a Freud quote, and Schelling is himself making a pretty direct allusion to a parable in Mark and Luke about light being hidden under a basket, as in this little light of mine. Really? Where Jesus says, the light under the basket, for there's nothing hidden except that it will come to light. Then, a light hidden under a basket. Well, a basket, yeah, obviously that's Fukuyama's head is under a basket. Yeah. So, first of all, there's like, Brubaker quoting Freud, who's quoting Schelling, who's quoting Jesus, right? Or quoting the Gospel of Mark, or whatever. Yeah. And then also, Freud, Schelling, and Brubaker are all talking about how secrets need to remain secret, but they're all doing so by alluding to a story about how nothing is going to remain secret. Mm, Things will be uncovered. And specifically, they're going to be uncovered things under a basket. So it's a sense that putting Fukuyama's head under a basket is... From the gospel telling of it, futile. Mm-hmm. You can't 
do it. The basket's coming off. There's nothing secret, but it's going to be revealed. And from a Freudian perspective, is necessary to keep, like, uncovering the basket is uncanny. Mm-hmm. Is the nature of the uncanny. When secret things get revealed, you're creeped out. Yeah. It's all, like, very dense in meaning. Mm-hmm. That little section. That little section. So last week, you said that Fukuyama probably wasn't a mutant. And in this, we find out that, yes, he is. Okay, score another point for Jay and is right. (laughs) I'm right. Although I I very quickly agreed with you when you said he wasn't. Now I feel like, no, I should have stood up for myself. Fukuyama has healing powers. Or he is, Brubaker says he's the boy who doesn't get sick. And... It's because of those powers that they do this to him. He's much, very... Much like Wolverine. Yeah. And specifically, like, not just the healing powers make him Wolverine, but even Wolverine, the government experiments on him, and he survives the experiment because of his mutant powers. Yep, exactly. Like, he's very Wolverine. Yeah. And we have... Them doing brain surgery on Fukuyama, I, like, I'm not going to lie, the first time I looked away because brains are gross. (laughs) But then they zoom in and the brain, the episode opens with a shot of the desert and the ground is all cracked and it looks just like Fukuyama's brain. Hmm. The, The cracked ground in the desert, especially in the opening shot, is so like the shot of Fukuyama's brain. Interesting. Yes. I'm not, don't know what to make of that. Mm-hmm. Except that uh, the the desert space, as it's going to be in the last part of this episode, is like a, a place that isn't a real place. Mm-hmm. And it's just the visual storytelling. Again and again, images are just tied together in this show, and they don't necessarily have... They don't necessarily have this strong connective, like, they're the exact same thing. It's just, this is the visual language of this show. Yeah. And these connected images, yeah, they don't have to mean, like, because this equals that. There are the conspiracy or are they coincidence. Mm -hmm. They're, like, rhymes. It's like a visual rhyme more than anything else. Yeah, exactly. The nurse at Fukuyama's bedside is reading from the Phantom Tool Booth, which is a 1961 children's book written by Norton Juster, uh, illustrated by Jules Pfeiffer. So are you familiar with the Phantom Tool Booth? I read it as a kid, probably only once. I'm not super familiar with it. To be honest, I'm not either. So I didn't really... uh, I'm sure there's more significance to the passage that the nurse reads, but I am not familiar with Phantom Tollbooth. And she's reading about, like, the passage is all about how everything's connected, how everyone matters. Mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know what the Phantom Tollbooth as a whole means, really. Like, I have such vague memories of it. But the passage specifically, you know, every time you jump, the earth moves a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're seeing all through this episode the question of whether people matter or not. And she's reading him a story about how everybody matters a lot. Yeah, exactly. I think we want to keep that in mind. When Autonomy is wandering around in the mainframe, 
the room that he finds the monk in. Did you catch the label on the door? Janitor? Yeah. Yeah. What's that about? The monk is not literally in there. Neither or, is Potonomy. Neither is Potonomy. But was the monk somehow connected to the mainframe? He was through the wires. Yeah. So is he doing some kind of cleanup? He makes this weird like noise like a modem. Like mm-hmm. old school <laughs> modem dial-up. That if you're our age, which is in our some point in our 30s, uh, you recognize that noise immediately. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was how you accessed the internet in the 90s. Um so it feels like he is, like, permanently connected to Fukuyama. Yeah, and a little later, I mean, in the section that you've recapped, when Potonomy is talking through Vermilion to David, he says, like, the monk is in here when he when he was connected to the mainframe, the connect, mainframe was connected to him. Mm-hmm. So, like... I don't know that the monk wants to be there. No, not necessarily. There's something sinister. I mean, there's something sinister and uncanny about Fukuyama all along. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uncanny, uh, like one of the profound things of uncanny, according to Freud, is things that seem familiar, uh, but then don't, but then aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like women with mustaches, for example. Yeah, absolutely. That's like textbook uncanny because... Mustaches are familiar. Women are familiar. Women with heavy mustaches like that just seems like I, it's not what we should be seeing. Yeah. Um, but so Vermilion is uncanny from the beginning. And their voices are uncanny. And everything about Fukuyama is uncanny. A basket on his head is un- uncanny. And uh, there's something sinister about the way he absorbs people. Mm-hmm. And this is another of, like, a mirror with the Shadow King. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say, is for him to have other people inside of him in this way makes him so similar to Farouk. Mm-hmm. And to David. And to David. And, like, this is what I can't quite... I don't think we need to decide, but it's really, like, is Fukuyama a Farouk because he eats people... Like they said in the last episode, he eats people and they were wrong, but maybe they were right because mm-hmm. there are people in his head. There are people he has absorbed in ex- just like Farouk has people in drawers in his mind uh, when he had uh, Lenny and Oliver. That's the monk and Potonomy. Mm-hmm. Or is Fukuyama like David, which makes Potonomy like the Shadow King? That Fukuyama is has a head, has a mind, and there are things in his mind that aren't him taking control of him with their own agendas, working against his agenda. Like his patonomy, the shadow king to Fukuyama. He chose him. He said, put him in the mainframe. So I don't feel like, like patonomy is a parasite. Right. The way the shadow king was. He's chosen to be in there. Chosen by Fukuyama. By Fukuyama. Patonomy didn't get a choice though. Yeah. He's more like Lenny. Yeah. But he is exercising some control over the, his host body. That is also true. I like how smart Potonomy is here. Me too. Where he gets the information, he knows the information is important, and he's like, okay, how can I communicate this? I'm going to figure out how to take over a vermilion mm-hmm. and talk to David. 
Oh. I wish that he had, the second he sat down with David, said Le Desolée, and then said the other stuff, and then came back to it, because it felt like, get the important information out first, and then convince them you are who you are. Yeah, I totally thought the same thing. There is this book uh, that I know you've read uh, by Connie Willis called Passage, mm-hmm. where one of the main character has a an epiphany partway through or or she gets annoyed about mysteries where everyone always saves the crucial information to the end like my fortune is hidden in the and she's like if i ever have something important to say i'm going to say the important part first armor third drawer that's where my fortune is yeah exactly <laughs> that's what you want like why are you doing all this long preamble patonomy <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what my influence for that comes from is that book So if ever you're in a position where you have a short time, most important, talk backwards if you have to. Most important part first. Yep, exactly. I, both for character reasons and for like the philosophy of the show reasons, uh, I really was struck by the line when David says, Potonomy, you're alive. Potonomy says, I exist in the machine preserved is that alive? Mm-hmm. And it's, I feel like, not a rhetorical question. Yeah, exactly. Either by Potonomy or by the show. Mm-hmm. Like, really, honestly, think a little bit about whether that's alive. Yeah, like, if the monk is dead because he fell off the roof, but is still preserved enough within Fukuyama that... The Potonomy, using his power, can read his past. How is that not life? Yep. I really like how when Vermilion is talking, at first it's the regular Vermilion voice, and then it gets layered with Potonomy's actual voice. Yeah, that's a really nice effect. Yeah. It's really good. I like this scene a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Me too. And we hear... Potonomy manages eventually to tell uh, David about Le Désolé. Mm-hmm. Now, Désolé is French for desolation, mm-hmm. which immediately makes me think of the wasteland in Arthurian myth, mm. which is, uh, I mean, incredibly thumbnail version, when the king is wounded his whole land becomes a wasteland until he's restored. Mm-hmm. Now, who in this, can you think of anyone in this show who calls himself the king? Mm. So the wasteland. The dog. the dog calls himself the king. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> until the dog gets okay, they need to take that dog to a vet. But it's like an inversion. Like the king, the fisher king in Arthurian myth is good. Mm-hmm is like, you know, beyond good, is uh, divinely ordained and and uh, holy. Mm-hmm. But the Shadow King's body is lying in a wasteland, in a desolation. And when you revive the Shadow King, the land will be revived also. Mm-hmm. Is it, used the Ar- to be a, it used to be a valley, now it's a desert. Yeah, and that's because of the Shadow King's body being there. Really? That's not a coincidence. That's interesting. That's the Arthurian myth reading. That might not be where they're going, but that's mm-hmm. where I went. My other thing, I think, is Désolée is 
idiomatic French for like, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's what you say for like, you know, hey, sorry. Or even, you know, yeah, basically sorry. Uh, is it a like polite sorry, like a deep apology? Or is it more like no. I step on your foot sorry? It's like you bump into, I mean, it's what you would say if so, you stepped on someone's foot. It's what you would say if like, oh, uh, you got here too late and were closed. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. it does not mean I am deeply and profoundly desolated in my soul at what has happened. It mm-hmm. means like, hey, sorry, buddy. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know, like, it, it, it definitely does not give the sense of, like, uh, remorse. Mm. It's like a nicety. So it's more like the desolation. Yeah, I think so. Is the implication. And also, this is the most tenuous of all, but until I watched it with subtitles, I wasn't sure what they were saying, whether it was Le Désolé, which I thought was more likely, or uh, Le Désolé, which would mean Milk of the Sun. Hmm. I kind of think... Either one of those could have worked. Right? Yeah. Like... Milk of the Sun... I kind of think that's probably a coincidence, mm-hmm. but it's a coincidence that has some meaning to it. Yeah. That like we could we could make a meal out of that. I think let's not. No. But it could mean milk of the sun. Mm-hmm. And then they arrive. Oliver and Farouk. Oliver sitting. Um, Farouk sitting in the passenger seat. By the way, in the back seat, mm-hmm. as we always see him. But like when Oliver's driving, when. In the end of last season, when Oliver was driving Lenny, Lenny was sitting in the passenger seat in the front. Now Oliver is driving Farouk, and Farouk is sitting in the back seat. Mm-hmm. There's a different power dynamic uh, yeah. signified by that. And they arrive at this retirement home, and it's called something like Café de Rest or something like mm-hmm. pretty banal in French. Um, and they find... The driver took Farouk's body to be buried. We remember when we saw her, we were like, what's her deal? I hope she comes back. There's something like... Yeah, absolutely. Both of us definitely thought that. And I'm excited to see her again. And excited to like, as soon as she showed up and then, and I was like, who could this be? And then she's, they show the flashback of her driving. I was like, oh, the driver. Yay. (laughs) We're back with the driver. And she's blind now. Mm-hmm. What's the significance of that, do you think? Was she blind before? She was wearing... You can't have she a blind wearing, driver. I guess she was a driver. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> you can't have a blind driver. <laughs> Sorry. Like, even, even in Supernatural... She <laughs> Okay, sorry. I think it's significant because she can't see Oliver. So she can easily distinguish that this is Farouk. Mm-hmm. That he can talk to her in his mind and in his voice. Mm-hmm. And he says, can you see me in my mind? She mm-hmm. says, you look just like you did. Yeah. Uh, also, in Greek mythology especially, there's a long tradition of a blind seer. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. The and oracle. I just wonder... Hmm? Like the oracle. Like the oracle. Like Homer himself yeah uh i just wonder whether there's some 
allusion to that. Mm -hmm. And she's blind and she knows the things and can see them even though she can't see. It indicates a connection to a supernatural sight. Yeah, absolutely. And did she remind you of anyone? Well, I mean, the connection between her and the rocking chair nurse is strong. Right. They're both old black women. Old black women who Uh, are like... Sitting in rocking chairs. Sitting in rocking chairs. And a nurse and a driver aren't the same, but there's a... They're both kind of like caretaking roles. Mm -hmm. Right? Especially driving a hearse. Yeah. So there's a real connection between them. And again, I don't know whether this is the kind of connection that's just like the brain in the desert. Like it's a visual rhyme. Mm -hmm. Or whether it's anything more profound than that. I kind of suspect that it's just another one of these details that are building a connection between Fruk and the Shadow King, not necessarily because there's an actual in-world connection, mm-hmm. but because to us as a viewer, we want to be able to recognize these people as mirror images of each other. Right? And if the nurse now lives in Fukuyama's brain, did she die and go there? Or is that just a memory of her? Yeah. Is she his caretaker forever in his brain? If she is, it suggests that, you know, Potonomy, the monk, the nurse, how many people does he have in there? Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to call that she's in some sense alive in his brain. That she's more than a memory. I'm suddenly thinking that scene we see where she's reading to him, we assume that's like real-world recovery zone, but that could be within his mind. That could be something that's happening at this moment, and he envisions himself as young in his memory or in his own self-conception. Or or it is that memory in his mind. Right. She was always just in his mind. Hmm. Interesting. I'm going to call my personal... Read is that at that moment she was out, she existed bodily outside of him, but now she doesn't. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's definitely room to be like, she could have been in there all along. She could have been implanted as soon as his surgery was done. Mm-hmm. She could be now a memory. My theory is that she was implanted in him when his surgery was done as the first of many. Right. He's also Legion. He's also Legion. Uh, So back to the driver. Yep. Is she dead or is she just like in a coma forever on the astral plane now? I don't think she's dead. She asked for the endless dream. Yeah. Which is different from, in my reading, if she asked for the endless sleep, Mm -hmm. that would really be easy to read as I want to be dead. And a lot of ambiguity about whether she was dead or not. I think the endless dream suggests like a psychic a psychic state of existence, mm-hmm. right? Where she can see and drive. Exactly. Yeah. And she asks Farouk how he knew where to find her, and Farouk says that Sid told him. He says a little bird from the future told him. Yeah. And we see a flash of Sid whispering in his ear. We do see a flash of Sid. But also a little bird is significant in that 
Melanie Bird and Oliver Bird. That's true. So what does that mean exactly? Hmm. Is that a hint towards something else? It might be. Is Sid in the future... Like, we just always know that Sid could have someone else inside of her. Yeah. So Sid from the future could be Melanie. Yeah. I don't know. That's just a thought. The word bird just seems too deliberate for that. See, and I didn't notice it at all. Hmm. But you're I think you're right. It like Oliver and Melanie are bird. Yeah. And Melanie has been kind of off the playing field for this whole season. And we see now in this part that she's in his pocket. Yeah. Or is going to be or whatever. Things are happening with her. And um, still wonders whether, like, is Sid, if it is Sid, is she now, is she playing a long game or a short game? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's still not clear. Not clear. And why would she tell him where she is? If she wants him to find her bo- the body. Yeah. And she and how would she know where the driver is? Because it happened already? I guess it's already happened. It's been years. And they just knew. See, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Man, it's a twisted mess of timelines. <laughs> yes, it time is. time travel. <laughs> but I kind of love it. Me too. Back at Division 3... David goes into the tank. He sees flashes of the desert and talks to himself, thinking of who can help him. In a long sequence, he sets out flags of different people on a recreation of the desert. He maps out the plan repeatedly. Lenny is still in her cell, snapping her fingers. David visits her and asks how she is, noticing she has Amy's habits. David asks if Amy's still in there, and Lenny asks if she's real. He kisses her on the head and disappears. In the hall, David touches the foreheads of of male Carrie and Clark, and with a flash disappears. Sid finds a note saying he's gone to kill the monster. Sid looks at her compass. In the desert, David appears and sees the monastery and begins walking towards it, but continues to wander. Oliver and Farouk are headed there as well. Oliver quotes Allen Ginsberg. Right. A lot of this section is this, like, uh, David and the kind of game board. Mm-hmm. So what is the deal with that? Well, I've been kind of saying all along, like, does David see the future? Or is he just really good at planning? Does he have, like, psychic instincts? Psychic in the sense of future sight. Yeah, exactly. I'm fairly certain that comic book David Holler has precognition. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't always use it. He doesn't always know that he has it. And our David, yeah. I think, for a lot of the show, has not known what powers he has and how to use them. And throughout the show, basically in every episode since the beginning of season one, has gotten more and more control over his powers. Mm-hmm. So it would make a lot of sense that if he has some kind of precognition that he hasn't 
really used it before, but he's starting to figure out how. What makes you think that he does? What really makes me think he does is in this whole sequence, he has a moment where he's thinking about Clark and you see a shot of Clark walking down the hall and then it stops and David says, and if when you go forward in the episode and that moment actually happens, as soon as Clark goes through that hallway, he gets hit in the head by Melanie. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like David is making this plan and he thinks about, okay, where will Clark be? And he, he thinks about him walking down the hall and he realizes that Clark will be hit by Melanie at that point, And so I can't use him. And that hasn't happened yet. And that makes him curse. And that hasn't happened yet. But I feel like David has seen that in that moment. What and do you he, think? Yeah, I think that's very convincing. And even all the flashes that he sees of the different people in different places. We'll have to wait till the next episode to see. This is what I'm thinking is, is a lot of what we see has not happened. We did not see in this episode. But this episode is very, feels like a two-parter. Mm-hmm. Like it ends without it, anything being resolved in a way that, I mean, Legion is very confusing and it, one episode leads into the other, but not in this way. This is a like, there was no ending to this episode. And this is also like the metaphor we use very often for a, t- for a piece of fiction uh, for the part one of a two-parter or a middle part of a two-parter is like they're moving all the pieces into place. Yeah. And this is literally that. They literally show him moving all the pieces into place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they're going to do this stuff in the next episode. Yeah. And I think like the shots we have, okay, it is the question. I think that Clark in the hallway really makes me suspect that you're right, that David is actually seeing the future. Then even the other stuff, like Clark and Vermillion's in the sliding down the wire, the rope and being in the desert, like we could read that as David planning it, but I'm going to place my bets that next episode we're going to see that very shot. Yeah, exactly. And is that because things happened exactly as he planned it or is it because he was seeing what was going to happen? I kind of think it's because he was seeing what was going to happen. He also repeatedly kills the uh, Farouk, like, flag thing. He doesn't just do it once. He, like, crumples and eats it one time, and he, like, turns it to dust another time. Hmm. I don't know how many times it is that he kills him, but... Three. three. Is it three? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, he's thinking of different ways he can do this. Hmm. That's not just him expressing, uh, that's not just him venting aggression. No, I don't think so. That's different. Different it plans. represents different plans, different yeah. end games of his plan. Interesting. The one time when he turns him to dust is just like when Farouk turns people to dust. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Let's just notice that. Mm-hmm. Also, just like when Farouk turns to dust, but that's a different... Uh, Spoilers! <laughs> Should I cut that out? Maybe. Okay. So this feels like such a real space. Him with this like giant map of this desert, moving around all these pieces. It feels like he's almost right there doing it. But of course, this 
can't really exist. Like, this is all, he's still in the tank making plans, hey? It's kind of like I an mean, astral plane place. Yeah, I think it's an astral plane. And, like, we've seen definitely that the places that David goes to in his mind are more than just imaginary. Mm-hmm. They're not physically real, but they're psychically real. They're more than just him planning and imagining. He creates the space with his psychic powers in the astral plane. Yeah, you're right. And, right? If, and if he wanted to, he could have invited anyone else he wanted to into that space, and they would have seen exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. One more th- thought about, like, the words that he uses before we see this section is he says, who can we use? Mm-hmm. And then he has all these thing, these game pieces. Yeah. And we're really... Uh, emphasizing that David sees other people as objects for him to use. Yeah. And then it's interesting then that he goes to Lenny's cell and does something to her. He goes to Carrie and Clark and does something to them. But Sid, he doesn't do anything to. It's true. He just leaves her a note. That's very true. Because he sees her as a person. Mm-hmm. He's, she's not an object he can use. I like that. When he touches, when he goes to Lenny, mm-hmm. when he touches her in the forehead, we see a flash of the future of her in the desert with a sniper rifle. Mm-hmm. So the way he's specifically planning to use her is as a sniper. Yeah, that's like an assassin. Yeah. She's, I mean, we see more of her trauma here. We do. That she's just like, can I ask you something? Am I real? Am I really here? Am I just going to wake up and be in Farouk's head again? Like, she's really still convinced that this is all just a trick. Or uh, worried that it is. Or worried that it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's not super reassuring for him to be like, yeah, you're definitely real. Poof. Yeah. (laughs) I know, right? I don't know whether that's uh, him just being careless because he sees her as an object. Uh or whether, I don't know, whether he's playing mind games with her. I don't think he's deliberately trying to undermine her. Mm-hmm. That he isn't being particularly sensitive to her mental state. Yeah. We have we do have here another conversation of, like, how much is Amy still there? Mm-hmm. And Lenny doesn't answer. No. He says, like, is, is Amy still in there somehow? And she just asks about whether she's really real mm-hmm. and then we see kind of the two of them not uh really responding to each other's worries yeah they each have their own worries their own anxieties and they're not really even noticing each other's yeah exactly the note that he leaves for sid is a red hexagon it sure is which is like what a stupid shape for a note, but <laughs> it's significant because it's... Okay, but have you, are you telling me that you have never handed anyone a note that was folded into a stupid shape? Well, of course I did. I was a teenager in the 90s. Like folded into an envelope or folded into a package that you... Like I was a, literally just teaching our kids this week about how we didn't have texting when I was a kid. We folded notes into cute little triangles. And then I attempted to make one of those triangles again. And wow, do I not remember. I had to look it up online. Aww. It was sad. It's symbolic of the death of your childhood. It is completely symbolic of the death of my childhood. But we're not talking about me. <laughs> we're talking about Sid. And this note is just like one more... 
hexagon symbol in a world of hexagons this season. Mm -hmm. It's red, mm -hmm. which is very like danger, murder, uh, <laughs> shadow king. Like this is red is always significantly dangerous in this yep. show. For sure. But red is also Sid. Sid wears red. She does because she's dangerous. She is. We have flashes of the future or of his plan or whatever, and one of them is a giant tuning fork. Yeah. When he hits the heads of Carrie and yeah. Clark, this giant tuning fork is there. And it's there in his little map of the desert as his well. His map of the desert. He has a draw, like, there are some things that are drawn out that are important pieces. And there's a little drawing of a tuning fork. Mm. What's, what's up with that? Any theories? I don't have any theories except for I'm reminded of uh, Spider-Man when he's getting, uh, what's it, Venom out of him? Yeah. And he uses that noise hmm. to get the Venom out. And so a tuning fork immediately springs to mind like using noise as a thing. As a weapon as against a, weapon. a psychic intruder. Exactly. Interesting. Because what I thought of is so much worse. Uh, was Lockjaw from the Inhumans. Mm, yes, that <laughs> Which is, is also a Marvel property, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I don't think it's a Lockjaw reference. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> <laughs> what I don't know, and this is going to continue throughout the rest of the episode, is David has this plan, he has these thoughts, he does this thing. There are two major things I want I don't understand, which is, does he know that Sid's going to join him? And... Does he realize he's going to wander around so much? Because he just zooms in headstrong with this whole plan, but then does he know that he's going to be completely lost for hours and hours? Sid isn't on the game board at all. No? I looked at that game board sec uh, section several times. Oh, okay. Sid isn't on it. Hmm. And everyone who is on it, we see also flashes of them in real life. Like yeah. Clark with two Vermilions, uh, Carrie and, uh, and, and a Vermilion, Carrie and Carrie and a Vermilion, I can't remember now. But anyway, they're all represented as they are. Mm -hmm. And Sid isn't on it. I, my theory is he sure acts surprised when Sid shows up. He does. So I don't know. He's. But he knows she has that compass. Like, he's got to be dumb. He gave it to, to think, her. Yeah. That she's not going to come after him with that compass. Yeah. Specifically because the whole, like, text, emphatically, the purpose of that compass was so that he wouldn't be able to run away to fight the monster without her again. Mm -hmm. That's what he did last time that she was mad about, and he gave him the compass so it wouldn't happen. So I don't think that there's any way... That he doesn't see it coming that she's going to meet. So I don't know why he leaves her in the first place. Mm -hmm. Except he's obsessed with her, with saving her from being hurt. Yeah. And he doesn't, I mean, really, he doesn't really get her. No. This is why he spent so much time in her head trying to figure her out. Yeah. And he just didn't get her. We've seen that quite a lot. In the, both the, seasons. The Sid and David love story is really falling apart this season. And I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but I really feel like it is. 
It's really getting strained. It's, it is on purpose. It is on I mean, purpose. in this episode, in the section that is going to come next that you haven't talked about yet, mm. Sid says, like, I love what we were. I'm just not sure we are that anymore. Yeah, you're right. That's how much more textual could you get that their love story is strained at least. Mm. I'm going to put money on, and maybe this is cockeyed optimism of me, I'm going to put money on that it's going to be resolved by the end of the season. Yeah. That we're not working towards them breaking. We're working towards them resolving okay. these issues. But they're definitely issues. Yeah. I also think, so just, you asked two questions. Does he know about Sid? And does he know he's going to be wandering in the desert? Yeah. I think he definitely knows he's going to be wandering in the desert. Yeah, you think so? Okay. I think my theory, whether, how, whether he's counting on Sid's involvement or not, I'm not a little unsure though it's hard to believe that he isn't because he's got to be dumb not to mm-hmm. but i think his plan with all the people that he's using is going according to plan so far just because we haven't seen it happening according to plan i don't i think it is mm. i'm gonna predict that okay that this is how he wants his plan to work mm. um oliver and farouk are headed to the desert in their uh Convertible, mm-hmm. and Oliver is quoting his favorite poet again. Do you have uh, that poem? So Oliver quotes America by Allen Ginsberg, who is absolutely Oliver's favorite poet. Uh, every poem Oliver has quoted has been by Ginsberg. Um, it's a longish poem, or at least too long, I think, to read all of it here. But uh, what Oliver says is, America, I've given you all and now I'm nothing. America, $2.27, January 17, 1956. I can't stand my own mind. America, when will we end the human war? The very next line is, go f*** yourself with your atomic bomb. Ah, <laughs> uh, So like, stop before he drops the literal F-bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that they don't have swearing in this. Season. Not that they don't have swearing in this season. I don't. I don't think that they've had f bombs. And for sent for as far as censors are concerned, not all swears are equal. No, I cannot remember. I felt like they have, but maybe they have. Um, and then some other words, some other lines that I'm, aren't in order anymore. I'm skipping ahead, but America, you don't really want to go to war, America. It's them bad Russians. Hmm. America, this is quite serious. America, this is the impression I get from looking on my television set. America, is this correct? So the whole poem is about, like, uh, you know, disappointment in America, disappointment in America and its obsession with war, that, like, cynicism about America, sarcastic cynicism about, like, no, you don't want to go to war. It's them bad Russians, them bad Chinese. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's kind of like in the last episode with the two tribes, quote, that we're having, like, the people who want to, who say that they don't want to go to war are the ones provoking the war. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And also throughout the poem is like the impression I get from looking in the television set. Is this correct? Hmm. What I see mediated through screens. Is this a real representation of the world as it is? Mm -hmm. And that's, we haven't talked about it yet, but that's going to be central to this episode also. 
is the world that I'm seeing through my screen the real world? Yeah. There may be more, but that's what I uh, think about the significance of America. Mm -hmm. The poem by Ginsburg, not the country. <laughs> it definitely reminds me of the uh, video by Childish Gambino. Mm -hmm. Just to have yeah. a quote like that, that Ginsburg was saying similar things to what he is now. The video by, I said this on our Twitter account, this is like a uh, tangent, but the video This is America by Childish Gambino, by the way, was directed by Hiro Murai, who directed also the uh, chapter six of Legion. Yeah. Which is the episode where Lenny dances through David's mind. Yeah. So, like, he's one of our own, mm -hmm. Hiro Murai. There's a... There's an, Strong connection. You're bringing up Childish Gambino, and it's not really a tangent. No, There's such a strong connection. I even knew that saying that. I know you did, but I don't know if all our listeners did. <laughs> Sid talks to Clark about her mother, saying she, like her, wished David away. Clark doesn't find it funny. Clark asks if David has left before and mentions a boy in the army who kept jumping out of planes to get away from him. They discuss David, his mental state, and whether or not he lies. Mm -hmm. Sid says she's going after him, and then we see that Melanie has been listening in on, in on them the whole time. David is lost in the desert. Lenny's cell door opens and she walks out, stealing a motorcycle and running away. Oliver and Farouk are on a rickshaw, running through the desert. David wanders and finds a pump, but he can only get a few drops of water. A plane passes overhead, and Sid parachutes from it. She's ups upset with him, saying she was always on his side, and they wander some more, intercut with Oliver and Farouk on the rickshaw. I really like this conversation between Sid and Clark. And I, man, I, could, I have, from his very first appearance in the pilot of this show, I have really liked... Uh, Hamish Linklater's performance as Clark. Mm -hmm. And I continue to. Me too. Doesn't, I'm not sure that Clark is a good guy. Mm -hmm. I think often he isn't. Yeah. But I really like his performance. I really like it when he's on the screen mm -hmm. a lot. I really like this conversation. And they go back and forth like Sid says maybe it's her fault. And Clark says maybe it's David's fault. Yeah. And then... They go through the conversation, and at the near the end of the conversation, they've kind of switched places, and Clark is saying that maybe it's Sid's fault. Mm -hmm. Like, when he says he puts his hand on her arm, and she doesn't like it. Yeah. And we really see her react like, I don't like that you're touching me right now. Yeah, I really, Rachel Keller's, like, just subtle shift and, like, facial expression was beautiful in that. She's, like, kudos to her and her acting. Yeah. Because you know exactly how she's feeling. And he says, uh, you know, your boyfriend is an extremely powerful mutant who could destroy the world if he want to, or if you hurt his feelings real bad. Mm -hmm. And that's like, frankly, a great line, like such a good line, but also yeah. a really crappy thing to say. Yeah, that's really blamey. That because. Like, it's not Sid's fault if David decides that because she doesn't love him, he has, is going to destroy the world. Exactly. And then like the subtext of that is. Well, you're in a relationship. You have to be forever now. Yeah, Because exactly. if you reject this man, he's going to kill people. This uh, 
happens to be especially upsetting as a line because of its connection to real world things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I don't think they could have been deliberately referencing the specifics of the real world. No, these, these episodes were filmed months ago. Months and months ago. But I mean, they're picking up on a like... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So Clark has this thing that he says about a boy he loved that kept jumping from planes to get away from him. Yeah. There's two things. One is like the least important, but he says, I loved a boy in the army. Does that mean the boy was in the army or does that mean Clark and the boy were in the army? My assumption was that they both were. Yeah, me too. Because because of the, like, jumping out of planes to get away from me almost implies that they were in the same plane. Yep. But also, in order for Clark to be in this world, in this government organization, it seems very likely he was in the army. Yeah, that was totally my read also. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, so that's less important, I think. Well, I mean, like, he talks about jumping out of planes and then immediately we see Sid, or not like right afterwards we see Sid jump out of a plane. So like, did she get the idea from him? <laughs> did like, it, or is that just some weird coincidence? Yeah. Hmm. Coincidence or conspiracy? We'll say it like six times an episode. <laughs> I know, there's so many coincidences. So the other thing is like, what is this story telling us? I loved a boy in the army who jumped out of planes to get away from me. What happened to him? Eventually the chute didn't open. What is that like? What is the point of this story? Is it talking about unrequited love? Maybe. And whether David has that for Sid or Sid has that for David? Maybe? Is what he's talking about? Sid's the one jumping out of planes. David's yeah. the one who's always running away from Sid. Yeah. And like... If David is like the boy jumping out of planes to get away from Clark, like he's running into danger, he claims it's to be protecting Sid, but Sid has already said, and Clark is now confirming from a different perspective, that David is running away from Sid into something that's going to take him away from her. Mm -hmm. On some level, he doesn't really want her. Yeah. I don't know if that is a the show's truth or just Clark's interpretation. Mm-hmm. You know? It's hard to say. And eventually the chute didn't open. I think that's definitely like, if you, David, keep running into danger, you're not going to survive it forever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is where, like, Sid says maybe she's pushing him away and Clark is like, or he just wants to run away. Mm -hmm. right? I keep thinking about that... We found out all this stuff about Clark in the previous season that he has this husband and son, and where where are they? I know. I thought that all, especially during this conversation, and especially when we see Clark like lives on campus. Yeah. Yeah. He has a son. I know. It's three years later, but three years, just a year, a year later. Oh, why did I say? Why did I think three? Probably because we've been watching Jane the Virgin and that three years pass. <laughs> There's a moment in Jane the Virgin where Jane's mother was wearing hexagon earrings and I like flipped out. Anyway, um, <laughs> one year later, it's like, 
even if it was three years. I was just like the age of his son three years later, he might be old enough to be, I don't know how old he was exactly, but he might be like off to college three years later. But one year later, he's certainly not. No. Yeah. I'd like to check back in on Clark's family and see what's up with them. Yeah, exactly. I hope they're all okay. Mm-hmm. In any case, though, back to the moment at hand, Sid's kind of answer to all of this is, uh, well, she talks about David lying. Mm-hmm. And her end of that story about David lying is uh, who teaches us to be normal when we're one of a kind. Mm-hmm. Which she has said before. She said it in her own head. No, she also said it in the first season. Yeah. When just after, when David, when she first explains the uh, first time she had sex. Right. She says, who teaches us to be normal, like she didn't know how to do that. Does she also? I'm now like doubting myself. Does she say it in her own head or is it only in the first season? I don't remember her saying it in that episode. I think it was just Hmm. in that one. Okay. I'll believe you. I feel like I remember it in both, but... It could be. could be a three-beat. Regardless of how many times she says it, she applied it to herself first, and now she's applying it to David. And it's interesting that, like, built into the very saying is we're one of a kind, Mm -hmm. and yet she's making a connection between them that they're like each other. Yeah, exactly. Her one-of-a-kind experience is relevant to his one-of-a-kind experience. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of that that's just the human condition. We're all one-of-a-kind. Yes, that's true. And all of our one-of-a-kind experience is relevant to each other's one-of-a-kind experience. Mm -hmm. Right? So Lenny escapes from herself. This was interesting to me because the Lenny that we saw with David was so just like, traumatized and messed up but then she has such confidence when she's just like okay the door's open i'm gonna leave i'm gonna take a motorcycle it's because he planted a post-psychic suggestion in her mind that's that she's what I, his yeah drone exactly the motorcycle she rides off on is a triumph Ooh, that's interesting you know that's a motorcycle brand mm. but we really see triumph as it rides away hmm I think that's significant. Yeah. And then we have David in the desert, and he sees, like, flashes of all kinds of stuff. He's wandering in the desert, and he's also seeing flashes. And one of the flashes he sees is, like, a bunch of people raising something up in the desert. Mm-hmm. What are they raising? I don't know. Because I first, I thought, like, it's a spike, it's a like a flagpole, and then finally, I thought, I don't think we see the top of it. I think it's the tuning fork. Maybe. Right? Yeah. It was the right size for it. Do you have to be on the right frequency to find the monastery? Is that it? Maybe that's what the tuning fork represents? Frequency psychically or like... Yeah? With sound? I don't know. Or like spiritually? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Any of those things, maybe? And we have Farouk and Oliver riding in a rickshaw. Oliver has his ever-present martini glass. And just Mm. as a side note, I love how it is physically attached to his hand. Yep. (laughs) I don't think that's an effect of Farouk's psychic manipulation because we saw him always have a martini glass also. 
at the end of season one. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, briefly he was in the real world. Yeah. Then. Um, but the rickshaw. The rickshaw, I think, is significant, especially because there's a person pulling it, running through the desert. I'm not sure whether this is a literal person literally pulling a literal uh, box with wheels and Oliver sitting on it through a literal desert. But I think probably it is. And I think definitely it symbolizes that Farouk is just like David. They both are using people. Mm -hmm. So why a rickshaw rather than any other kind of transportation? Because a rickshaw is using a person to pull you around. Uh, and it symbolizes Farouk being like David was not really seeing people as people. Mm-hmm. Not that like anyone who ever rides in a rickshaw doesn't see people as people, but like what it symbolizes visually. And when it's someone in a rickshaw running flat out yeah, is a big sure. difference from someone in a rickshaw just like walking along. Yeah. Have you ever ridden in a human drone in a rickshaw? No, definitely not. Have you? Yeah. Oh. In San Francisco, I think. Mm. Uh, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I was little, so yeah. like I probably was easy for him to pull. I don't have a huge memory of it. It was probably me and my sister, actually. I don't really remember. But it was most likely two of us, and he did run. Mm-hmm. There you go. And then David comes to a pump in the desert that I think has got to be symbolic. But let me also just say, David, have you never seen a pump before? I know, he pumps it like twice and then it's like, oh, just a tiny drop comes out. Like, okay, here's how pumps work, people. You pump <laughs> them lots and lots of times and that primes them and then the water comes out in a big gush. If you like pump the handle once and no water comes out, do not then come to the conclusion that this pump doesn't work, you moron. <laughs> I mean... Generally, most people don't necessarily know how pumps work because we live in the modern age with plumbing and whatnot. You got to pump it lots of times. Yeah. Now you all know, our listeners, when you come to a pump, pump it many times. So Sid descending from the sky on that parachute is so forking cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just gorgeous. Her just floating down like that. It's a beautiful shot. It's a, like, completely badass shot. I love everything about it Mm -hmm. visually and thematically. Yep. She literally drops from the sky to where he is. Yep. And then, also, a door, uh, her just walks towards him and he backs away. Mm -hmm. And her kicking him in the shins. And hitting him and saying, I'm on your side. Yep. All of that. I love it. It is so good. Mm Mm-hmm. One of my series favorite moments. Yeah, I say so too. And just like, how dare you leave me again? Yeah. And he's like, I left a note this time. Like, that is not enough. I left a note and I also said I love you. And like, it's back to your, he doesn't understand her. And like, one of the reasons yeah. I love this moment so much is it's visually beautiful. It's visually significant. It's hilarious but it also is like there's real emotional truth to it of like he's trying to run away from her and he she he can't he doesn't understand her she still seeks him they're still connected even when he's Mm self-sabotaging and like she their relationship hurts him uh but it is also good for him and she's the one putting effort into it 
although he portrays himself as putting effort into it. Mm -hmm. Like everything about it, it's telling us a lot about both their characters and the nature of their relationship and their emotional state at this moment. And what he's trying to hide from her. Yeah. Is that she, when he was in her head, she showed him all the awful parts of herself. Mm -hmm. But he's still trying to hide those parts from her. Mm -hmm. He's still trying to say, you know... I can do all this stuff, but I don't really want you to see it. I'm going to go kill the monster where where you're not going to witness it because I don't want you to see that part of me. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like his powers just keep getting more and more uh, in his control mm -hmm. in this season. And that's what Clark and Sid talk about. Like, is he a liar? And I think that part of it is that he's just not saying, telling them or showing them how powerful he can be. Yeah. I think he knows it. He knows how what his powers are at this point. Definitely knows it more than he did in season one. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I don't know that he's telling them more about it than he did in season one. I think you're totally right. That's what Sid's talking about when she said he lies. And we still don't know really how what happened to him during that year away. No. We know that he talked to future Sid, apparently. But we don't know. And we don't know if he knows. Yeah. And then they're talking about the building, that finding the building. He said it used to be there, but it moves. Mm. How can a building move? I don't know. And I love also how sometimes they break like the portentous, deep, significant, symbolic language and just break, react to the weirdness. Mm -hmm. I like these moments where they're just like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is just as weird to me as it is to everybody else. Yep. I don't know, this, there's a moving building and I don't know how to find it. And it's yeah. frustrating. And how can a building move? I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this whole part in the desert with uh, Farouk and Oliver on the rickshaw and Sid and David wandering around, all the shots are these intercut squares. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you haven't seen Fargo, this is directly the same style they used in Fargo season two. Yeah, for sure. Is all, and I really love it. These like, it shows both from close up and far away what someone's doing. Mm -hmm. And you get this visual scope and this sense of time passing in a really cool way. And I like that he used this in Legion as well. It's also, in addition to being a real visual callback to Fargo season two, it's also a visual Allusion to comic books. Mm -hmm. It looks like yeah. comic book panels. It does look like panels. I also, I really like the visual effect of that a lot. We break from all this wandering in the desert with another John Hamm narration. So they're not over. It's the cave. Imagine a cave where all we see are shadows. The real world would be incomprehensible. This is compared to phones and seeing life through a prism. The narcissist doesn't believe others have feelings and they are just shadows. And how strange the world would look after a lifetime of those shadows. Back in the desert, it's gotten stormy. Sid and David find a campsite with a tent. They go inside only to find skeletons of themselves. This then repeats and they go inside and find a skeleton of themselves and settle down despite the fact that they're there. Sid calls it a geographic disorder. And David says they'll soon go home. But Sid says every story ends with death. 
Clark wakes and remembers David saying, find the clock of the long now. He walks the hall only to be hit in the head by Melanie. She goes to drag him away, but then time goes backwards and we hear Oliver's voice inside of her head. Oliver in the desert says that she's theirs. And in one final upside down shot, we see the Minotaur from Melanie's maze. So we're back to John Hamm narrations. So we wondered whether those were gone, but they're not. They're definitely continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and he starts off by saying, now we come to the most dangerous delusion of all, the idea that other people don't matter. Mm-hmm. And we see in this episode, both David and Farouk, like it's central to the way that they're both acting throughout the episode is that other people don't matter. Mm-hmm. And even the way that uh, Fukuyama acts, that, like, he saves uh, Patonomy in the last episode. We, like, we could save his mind. It suggests that maybe it's important he does care about Patonomy. But then there's a bunch of people in his head that maybe because they do matter or maybe because they don't matter. And it comes right back again to what the Hush Woman was reading in Fukuyama's head about, like... Everybody matters. Everything matters. Everything's important. Yeah. And so coming back to here, the idea that other people don't matter isn't just morally wrong. It's a delusion. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a difference between something that is wrong uh, morally and something that's like believing that other people don't matter is delusional. Yeah, exactly. I like putting that emphasis on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And we get the the cave story, which uh, we recognize that, right? I mean, it's directly from Plato. It's Plato's cave. If you've ever studied any kind of philosophy, you've heard this before. Yeah. That, And this is just literally reproducing it. Is pe- if people are in a cave, imagine if everyone was in a cave and all they could see was shadows in the wall. And then someone were to escape that cave, the real world would be incomprehensible. Yeah, and what Plato says that John Hamm doesn't is the person having escaped the cave would then go back to the cave to try to show other people the real world, and mm-hmm. the people in the cave wouldn't want to hear it. Yeah, they wouldn't accept him. And they would kill the person mm-hmm. for trying to show them the real world. Yeah. That's important to Plato because uh, he's writing after people have just killed Socrates. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, I mean, that's especially why it's important to Plato. Yeah. It's not important to legion right now mm-hmm. someone coming back in and showing you the real world what matters is like you are the one who escaped the cave the real world would be incomprehensible to you except if you go meta legion is showing us the audience the real the, that we're in the cave through this next sequence of everybody's looking at their phones and not interacting with the real world is them trying to say look I'm showing you that there is a real world out there. Okay, so this John Hamm narration about why cell phones are bad, this Legion showing us the real world, showing us the viewers the real world, it's it's a little ham-handed. It goes on a little too long. <laughs> ham-handed. I didn't even do that on purpose. Ugh. I do feel the same, though. I feel like it's... It's kind of eye-rolly. It's kind of like 
grandpa Luddite talk where like every all the kids these days are just everybody's just staring at their phones and they're not doing anything and why look at me I'm looking at the real world and like, that's crap honestly I think the narration is pretty on point if maybe could have used a little trimming mm-hmm. but it's the visuals that like how is it that people don't see the world it, oh it's because of cell phones and texting yeah and like I mean, uh, Ginsburg was talking about that in the 70s. Yeah. You quote it like, America, this is what I see on my TV screen. Is that correct? It's about like my experience of America is mediated through the TV. It's not about texting. I mean, it's what Plato's allegory is from like, I don't even know, 300 BC or something. Yeah. Uh, So that I get trying to make it... uh, specific Mm -hmm. but i think it's a misfire to make it all about texting especially to do it for so do it so heavy-handedly yeah though there are parts that are really significant in like i like what he's saying about um narcissism and that through sometimes through looking at people through this kind of lens we forget that they're people yeah and will attack I mean, Any number of people through a through anonymity. And that's where, like, on one hand, I think it's kind of heavy-handed. I think the words are actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Because it is true that uh, if you don't, if you allow yourself to see people through a prism, to see people mediated through, you know, a screen, mm-hmm. and whether that's a literal screen on your phone or a metaphorical screen... You allow people to be disconnect people's ideas to be disconnected from themselves. That is delusional. Yeah. And it's a common delusion. And you can't pretend like it is not old man yells at cloud to say like, we really like to be allowed not to think of people as people. Yes. And it's not even, it may be kind of overdone as a point, but that doesn't mean it's an untrue point that like, Social media makes that easier. Mm-hmm. And in the internet in general makes yeah, that makes easier, easier to not be faced with the truth of people's humanity. Mm-hmm. And the specific example he uses of like, women deserve pay. You sound fat. Are you fat? Like, yeah, that's not an exaggeration. Nope, not at all. So like, it's a little heavy handed, but it's close. It was close to being good. It was close it to being good. Just needed a little trimming. Yeah. I think. It is the first time I've watched Legion and been like, oh, come on. Yeah. I, I, part of my bristling is the forever example of like the teenage girl. Exactly. Yeah. That like, oh, it's the teenage girl who's a narcissist because she's, you know, taking selfies or whatever. And that bothers me because there's a lot of attacks on the teenage girl as a concept and they are always. It's upspeak, it's vocal fry, it's everything, anything a teenage girl does gets accused of as being dumb and narcissistic and all sorts of things. Whereas, like, I felt like, and I totally agree with you, I'm just saying, uh, based only on the text, narcissism on the internet, specifically the use of the word narcissism, seems like a Trump reference. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then the visuals are showing us a teenage girl, but the the words, I think, are saying something that are pretty uh, 
relevant to this specific moment. Yes, exactly. So we've gone a little bit far afield from what we usually do in this show. So yeah. let's go back to what does this mean for this episode exactly? Is not seeing people as people, mm-hmm. like the rickshaw driver, yep. is not seeing people as people. David has arranged all these pieces on the board mm-hmm. of his life except for Sid. And so literally no one is people except her. And even her, we've mentioned that he doesn't really see her. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't see her properly. And I think I think it's all that, absolutely. And I think it's something that has been a theme of Legion from the very beginning, which is just what is real. Exactly, exactly. And how can you know what's real if you're not even looking? Mm-hmm. The girl? Uh, we, have, we have a duck, chicken, cow... More farm animals, by the way. Oh, yeah. A cow. uh, Maybe we didn't see a cow. Maybe when we thought we saw a cow, we didn't see a cow. Maybe that's what they're telling us. Um, Maybe. The girl who takes a picture of the chicken that she thinks is a duck and someone says is a cow, she's wearing a dress with sunflowers on it. Oh, I didn't notice that. Um, Yeah. Sunflowers, of course, significant for Amy. Mm-hmm. And for Oliver. And for Oliver. Yeah, sunflowers just significant on this show. Yeah. They're a visual clue to it being Legion. Yep. Yeah. And the woman who, uh, when John Hamm says, like, what if you looked up? And we see her looking up from her phone and waking up and seeing the real world. She walks out and stands in the, on an X. Yes. On a real street. Like, she's no longer in that white space that we've only ever seen for these narrations. She's actually on a street. Yeah. Which was interesting, too. Especially in the context of what is real. Mm -hmm. What's the real world? She has walked out into the real world. Yeah. Speaking of things that are in the real world or aren't in the real world or are surreal... Uh, David and Sid walk into this tent that has a chandelier, mm-hmm. which is like, weird. Yeah, it's very <laughs> Harry Potter-esque. I thought the same exact thing. A chandelier in a tent, uh, and they see skeletons of themselves. Mm-hmm. With Sid with her necklace, so that's how you know it's them. Yeah, if you didn't... The first time watching it, I didn't catch... The clue, like how they know that it's them other than just knowing. But the second time, you can clearly see that she's wearing her compass necklace. You always miss the necklace. I do. I don't know why it doesn't (laughs) stand out to me visually somehow. Yeah, it's funny. And we do it, and they do it twice, right? Yeah, it's weird because like they walk in, they see the skeletons in the exact same way. They just like, it kind of feels like a glitch, you know? Yeah. It's not like they do anything differently. Yep. But it implies some kind of a time loop, maybe. I mean, and seeing skeletons of themselves implies a time loop yes, also. Yes, that too. That too. <laughs> and uh, Sid says, it's some kind of geographical disorder. <laughs> and David says, is that a thing? Yeah, exactly. I love... It's another one of these, like... I'm going to use some jargon that is going to make sense of this situation somehow. Like, yeah. No, in the world of Legion, in world, 
to David and Sid, geographic disorder doesn't mean anything more than it does to us out of world. She's yeah. just putting words together. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's great. She says she just wants to go home. But where is home to them? Mm-hmm. They've lived in a mental institution. They've lived at, at Summerland. And they now live at Division Three. They've never had a home. None of those are very homely. No. Speaking of, so they are unhomely. Mm. Translate that into German for me. Mm-hmm. They're all unheimlich. Unheimlich. All the places that they live are unhomely. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. And David wants the life that Amy said to him. Yeah. She want, he wants Sid to be that life of, you know, I'm going to move off to the country and just get away from everybody and that'll be fine. But what, they can't live that life. That's what Melanie told him to run away to. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, doesn't seem like it's in the cards. No, it sure doesn't. And it, and as Sid says, like, no matter where they go, they die eventually. And that's basically, like, when Sid says every story ends the same, I feel like that's the point that I was making in our episode about chapter 14 when we had you know, all the different multiple worlds of David. Mm-hmm. And then we ended right where we started. And you said, like, was this episode pointless because we end where we started? I feel like Sid's saying the same thing. Like, is what we're doing pointless? Because we're just going to end the same way no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. All stories end the same way. Yeah. It's like, the point of a story isn't the end. No. In one sense, all stories do end the same way. I think of the line from uh, the Tom Stoppard play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead that made a big impression on me once. That he, at one point, he says, For all the points of the compass, there's only one direction. Hmm. Ah. Uh, That's significant that Sid has a compass. I know. But the point that kind of David makes and that I was making in chapter 14, too, is like, but the end isn't the story. Mm-hmm. Sure, they all end the same way. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that, by the way, uh, um, Noah Hawley is clearly interested in existentialist philosophy. That's kind of central in existentialist philosophy, too. Mm. They're like, yeah, everyone dies. You know your death is coming. You... Some ex- some more nihilist philosophers say, like, so there's no point in anything. But existentialists tend to say, so what matters is what you do right now. Right? Yeah. And Sid says, when the time comes, prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. About what? About what? About being a liar? About what did she just say to him? I don't know. What like, she just said was that all stories all end stories the same way. End the same way. When the time comes, prove that we don't all just die? I don't know. Future her has said that, like, we need to get Farouk's body so he can stop David because David's going to be a villain. And present Sid might not actually know that, but she at this point is starting to suspect it. Mm-hmm. 
And when the time comes, prove me wrong. I'm starting to doubt that you're a good guy. Yeah. I think so. So we have Melanie hitting Clark over the head. Mm-hmm. And we have this loop, like we've just seen, this like weird time displacement where she, we see him hit her over the, we see her hit him over the head and then go to drag his body and then suddenly it's going backwards and you're like, oh, she's dragging him back and then no, she sets him down and the whole thing is going backwards and showing where she was before this. And this is one of the typical Legion things that I feel like we haven't had quite so strongly in a while of like, did time just move backwards or is this TV show just using this as a device to show me what happened before this? I assumed it was just a device to show you what happened before this. But we've just come from time is moving weird. That is also true. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of think you're right, but it's like the immediately preceding scene was time was moving weird. Mm-hmm. So maybe time is moving weird. Maybe time is moving weird. We but hear Oliver's voice, like the voices aren't going backwards. Oliver's voice is saying, Melanie, Melanie. Yeah. And is she under his control is the que- is the big question mark here. Is that Oliver says, like, sh- she's ours. Well, here. what Oliver says is, she's ours. Mine. Mm-hmm. Ours. He says, ours, mine, ours. And that's like, well, is Oliver on Farouk's side? No. No. And Melanie is the uh, implement of Oliver being not on Farouk's side. Yeah. Or like the uh, inciting spark of him deciding not, or whatever. Yeah. He thinks about her. I think this is the moment Mm -hmm. when Oliver's doing something. She's ours. Mine. Mm-hmm. By which he means not yours. Not yours. And then he corrects himself back. Look, ours. No, yeah, she's yours too. Mm-hmm. I think the mine is the truest of the three things. I think so too. Before Melanie knocks uh, Clark out, David in Clark's mind says, go find the clock of the long now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the clock of the long now is? No, is that something? It's real. Oh. The clock of the long now is a planned 10,000 year clock. Uh, it was, it is intended to chime every thousand years. Uh, it was an art project conceived in the mid nineties as like a way of giving people a sense of perspective hmm. on that time is long. Yeah. It is currently being built on land owned by Jeff Bezos, a, that is the owner of Amazon mm-hmm. in the desert in Texas. Huh. Interesting. I'm not sure what all that means for Legion, mm-hmm. but the clock of the lung now is real. Well, and what, presumably what David is telling Clark to find is not what he actually wants him to find because he knows that Melanie is going to derail him, right? I think so. So yeah. this is a red herring. This is a red herring. But the clock of the long now is real and mm. it's in Texas. It's not finished yet. Is it a giant tuning fork? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't know what it physically looks like. It could be, for all I know, but I don't think it is. Yeah. But I think he was telling that to both Carrie and Clark. And so Carrie would know as well. And Carrie isn't getting knocked out by Melanie. 
Yeah. Or at least in this episode, she's not. Huh. I kind of assumed that Clark and Carrie received different orders. Hmm. He hit them both at the same moment, but he gave them different You may be right. Jobs. Yeah. Because on the board, he's sending them in different places. That's true. That's true. And then the episode ends with Farouk calling, I'm coming, my love. Come. Yeah. Is his, hmm? is his love his own body? Right? He's in love with himself. I mean, like, you can see he would say that. To or, his own body. Or is it not Farouk talking, but Oliver talking to Melanie? Yeah, and that's the other, for sure, the other possible read on that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't end with that. It ends with the Minotaur again. <laughs> Or like the weird goat-headed creature in the with the skull on the wheelchair thing. It's the Minotaur upside, upside down. I know, <laughs> but it's not the Minotaur as in like the mythological creature. They call it the Minotaur. That's not what a Minotaur is. <laughs> and it's upside down again. And it's upside down again. Which like that's making me think of Stranger Things with like the upside down. Yeah. But I don't know. Is is uh. It's inside Melanie's head. Mm-hmm. Is that like the representation of Oliver inside Melanie's head somehow? Is that some kind Ooh. of infection that Melanie has? Oh, if that's representation of Oliver, that doesn't bode well for their relationship. No, it sure doesn't. I want to think that like once Oliver is under his own control again, maybe they can make a go of it. No, I don't think so. Melanie's pretty yeah. lost. Uh, it's just my optimism again. Yeah, your romantic optimism. And what an ending, though. What an ending. So, do we want to talk about the songs in this? Yes. First song to talk about, uh, while Farouk is driving, well, Oliver is driving Farouk into the desert to the retirement home where he meets his driver, what is playing is... Uh, from La Chanson des Roses by Morton Lauridson, number one, Une Seule Fleur. Uh, the words translated into English roughly are, uh, After all, it is we who propose to you to fill your chalice. Enchanted with this artifice, your abundance has dared. You were rich enough to become a hundred times yourself in a single flower. It's the state of one who loves, but you did not think elsewhere. Hmm. And the words are like, don't make much more literal sense in French than what I just read. Like, Hmm. that's not a result of bad translation. That's a result of poetic language. Um, I've, a few things to say about this. One is just like, this is a beautiful piece of music. Uh, I recommend you to like look it up and just listen to it because it is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the what I what really stands out to me in it is you were rich enough to become a hundred times yourself, like. There's, but you didn't think elsewhere. Mm-hmm. 
You could have become more than yourself in a single flower, but you didn't think elsewhere. You didn't think of anything but yourself is how I'm reading that. Uh, and we have Farouk searching for his own body, searching for himself. He has enough to become a hundred times himself, mm -hmm. but he's not going to. And also the idea of becoming a hundred times yourself in this show where everyone is more than themselves. Yeah. And also it's the state of one who loves. Uh, this episode, Sid is really telling us about, reiterates what she said in the chapter, whatever that was in her brain of like, love is what we have to save. Love's not what's going to save us. It's what we have to save. And the mm -hmm. state of one who loves is to be rich enough to become 100 times themselves. Mm. And then it moves seamlessly from that French song. Oh, oh, and the last thing is just Farouk speaks lots of languages. And when he's speaking French, uh, it, it, the different languages he speaks have different meanings. They suggest different things about what he wants to, what his purpose is. Mm -hmm. Like he speaks German when he's more aggressive. He speaks... Uh, Arabic when he's being more ancient. Arabic when he's more ancient. He speaks English when he's more pragmatic. And he speaks French when he's more like philosophical and that's not you making that up that comes from there's a behind the scenes thing on the fx's youtube yeah about that with an interview with uh Farouk. an interview with uh yeah what's his name david with noah holly isn't it no holly but also david uh oh who plays Farouk? who plays Farouk. yeah i can't remember his name um but, uh, so this song is French and it suggests that Farouk is philosophical. Mm -hmm. And then it moves from that seamlessly into another song that not in English, but this time it's in Italian, which is not a Farouk language. As the driver takes Farouk to his body in a dream, what plays is an Italian song, Non Piangere Maria by Domenico Madugno. Uh, that is longer, long enough that I'm not going to read all of it, but some uh, relevant lyrics translated into English. Hand printed a poster who talks about us. Italians are good people. We are tired of you. No, do not cry, Mur Maria. It's fine, I swear. They will not drive us away, at least not for now. Do not cry, Maria. There's no reason. A year passes soon. Although it may seem a prison, we're all there in joy. Do not cry, Maria. They will not drive us away. So, this is like a poster that says, Italians are good people, we're tired of you. And we have Farouk, and the idea throughout this season with Farouk is like, who's the good person? Who's being driven away? Mm -hmm. he, who wants, like, we're good people, we're tired of you, get out of here. And Farouk keeps tying that into race. And this song, I don't know what it's about, but it sounds to me, and I could be out to lunch, but it sounds to me like, uh, like Italy was uh, fascist in World War II. Yeah. And they deported people to Germany to concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And like the Italians are good people, go away. No, don't cry, Maria. They won't drive us away. That sounds to me like 
a, an allusion to Italy in World War II. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's not, but it's what it reads to me. Um, and also is about being in a prison. A year passes quickly. We're in a prison, but we'll come out. Don't cry, Maria. And like Farouk has been locked away from his body. And David has been locked for a year in the in the sphere. Exactly. And then the third song in this episode is Comanche Moon by the Black Angels that plays while David is making his plan. And that goes, So tired of all this misfortune, we've been wandering for most of, our li- of the lies. They've stolen the land, we've been roaming, I swear it's the end of the line. We'll fight, we survive, inside out, upside down, all around, underground. Pale faces of death and destruction, all our sons have died. We trusted with bland am- blind ambition, you promised with handshakes and lies. Be the moon, you'll die, be the moonlight, you'll die in this strike. We're tired of all this bad fortune, been fighting for all of our lives. We'll reach into your socket, rip back your scalp as you cry. We'll fight, we survive. In, upside, inside down, upside down, all around, underground. And I, again, uh, I read that very much as about uh, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And once again, Farouk has talked about uh, all these white heroes with blue eyes and your father, who was a white man, does this matter? And he comes to my land and he... Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have... David's the one acting during this song, but the song is talks about you know pale faces of death and destruction. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it as a little more literally of like land and war, and he's just making a he's imagining a warland right now. Yep, that is also definitely a possible read. Finally, um, while Melanie is going backwards and Oliver is shouting, uh, is saying, Melanie, Melanie, it's double looped of Oliver's voice. And one of them is saying his, her name and the other is singing, my Bonnie lies over the ocean. Mm-hmm. Bring back my Bonnie to me. And I think the meaning of that is not, not hard to interpret. He's singing about bringing Melanie back to him. Mm-hmm. Singing about she has been out of his reach, she has been somewhere else, and he's bringing her back. Yeah, absolutely. Do we have any feedback on this episode? We have a little bit of feedback in general. On this episode specifically, uh, Chris Osgood on Twitter mentioned uh, a little possible error in Legion, which is always disappointing to see. But when Lenny escapes Division 3, the stairs are a college campus. When she pulls away on the motorcycle, you can see the student services sign on the opposite building. Kind of disappointing for normal Legion visual detail. And I I wrote this on Twitter as well, but like, I can maybe headcanon that Division 3 might have some student services, you know, because there could be some students there. Well, but I, I don't I, know. This could easily be in-world, a repurposed university campus. Yeah, that's true. It could be. Division 3 lives at a, a repurposed And specifically, campus. in this episode, we see Fukuyama on a campus. 
And then Brubaker approaches him and he like, he's presumably a first year university despite being 17 or maybe a private high school campus. Mm. I wonder if it's the same place. Hmm. Maybe. It doesn't, the inside doesn't feel very much like a campus though. I guess dorms, but. I think it totally does. Yeah. I mean, we're only seeing, we're mostly seeing the hallways. Yeah, that's true. But that feels like university hallways Mm -hmm. to me. Speaking of hallways, just to pause from this for a second, I forgot to mention that Lenny's hallway as she escapes is this black and white stripes. Mm -hmm. So that's very Lenny specific. That's we've seen inside Fukuyama's head or inside Farouk's head is black and white like that. So it's interesting that that would be in the real world outside the hallway. And would lend possibly Lenny to think I'm no, I'm still in Farouk's head. Hmm. But back to feedback. Um, Miranda Patton uh, at Midnight Jones 86 says, I loved how once again, Clark's face was lit to hide his burned side when he's trying to get information from Sid. Yeah. He remains so mysterious and interesting to me. And I hope we learn more about his true motives before the season is over. And we even already talked about this a little bit. That, that yeah, like he Clark is such an intriguing character, and the way they keep lighting him as to what side shows is totally significant. Absolutely. And I hadn't I hadn't fully noticed this time around because I've gotten so used to it. But this is his good side is showing to to uh, to Sid, and it's like his gentle side shows to her. Yeah. I think absolutely the way even that you're putting it just now of it's he's showing her his gentle side. Mm-hmm. I think is exactly right. Yeah. Like he's deliberately showing her a side of himself. Yeah. A couple of general comments we got. Um, Action J mentioned that this crumpling thing in the last episode of of uh, deaths that David does is also used in Agents of Shield apparently. Hmm. which neither of us have been watching for a few seasons, but that's kind of interesting connection to the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. And lastly, just a little thank you to uh, SBG Mad Max mom, who just gave us a little bit of praise about how much she loves our podcast and made me feel pretty happy this week. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think her name is Sarah. So thanks Sarah. Um, so anything else that we need to say about this episode before we wrap this up? I think that's about it. Okay, if you have more to say, we have started reading people's feedback on air. So if you want to feature in an episode, you can add us on Twitter at ClockworksCast. And even if you send us an email, we might read that out online out on the air as well. ClockworksCast at gmail.com. If it feels like it's something that you want read on, if you don't want it read, you can say so. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Or you or you can be anonymous if you want to be anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, I just assume everyone wants to be famous like me. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Um, if you like what we do and want to support us, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast, where you can give as little as a dollar a month to get some extra bonus features and just to help us sound better, do better, have a little more time for for the editing and all the stuff to do with the podcast creation. You also Mm -hmm. could check out our other podcast way too seriously. And uh, what else can people do, Paul? You could rate and review us. Oh, that too. Yep. Always appreciated. Mm -hmm. And if you know anyone who else who likes Legion and is going, what is this show? Let them know that there are podcasts out there like ours that 
you can listen to and find out some more intrigue. Let's be honest, there's no podcast like ours. No, ours is the only one. The only Legion <laughs> podcast out there. Don't even search for other ones. <laughs> and on that note, I've been Paul Moffitt. I've been Jan Moffitt. Goodbye. <laughs>